Welcome back to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. I'm Brother Israel, and I'm here with Nelson Sintra. So today is a special day for us, kind of a milestone day, because we're releasing our 10th episode. That's right, 10 episodes of this podcast. And before we bring you the episode, we wanted to express our gratitude to you, our listeners. We started brainstorming this project a little over a year ago and quickly realized we knew nothing about podcasting. We hardly knew how to turn on our mics, actually. Now there are somewhere between 150 and 200 of you listening to each episode, and you've discovered how valuable Abbot Jeremy's teaching is, and you've stuck with us through our technical struggles. You are the reason why we're doing this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for your time, for your support, and above all, thank you for your prayers. Please do pray for us and for the success of the podcast. Be sure of our prayers for all of you. We are in this together, and we're being sanctified together. And now, we bring you the 10th episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast, in which Abba Jeremy, Nelson, and Caleb start us off on the fourth master theme, anamnesis, epiclesis, and eschatology. We hope you enjoy. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Hello, Caleb. Hello, Father Abbott. Hello, Nelson. Hello, Caleb. <laughs> it's good to see you, Father. Good to see you, too. I'm getting making you bigger on my screen. There we are. <laughs> and Caleb, there's no vision of you. You're in hiding. Yes. Your life is hidden now with Christ in God, (laughs) to quote the Apostle. Yeah, that's the Apostle Paul. That's good. (laughs) So how are you guys? What's been going on? Going pretty well. I've been at my parish assignment for a couple weeks now. Which is where? um, I'm at St. Francis of Assisi in Bend. Okay. Um, And... Just been learning about the parish and getting to know quite a few people. I helped out with the vacation Bible school for elementary students. So that was exciting. Okay. I would think Bend is full of vacationers, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah the rest. <laughs> it's, the most it's beautiful parts of Oregon. Yeah. What about you, Nelson? I have been doing CPE, clinical pastoral education at St. Luke's Hospital in Boise. It's been really good. It's been really difficult in in lots of ways, but really good. And I think I've been learning a lot and growing a lot and still a lot more to to learn and to grow. So I'm I'm really excited for the summer, Um, experiencing kind of the the extremities of life with people, birth and and death and heavy illness. it has it has been challenging to to be sure, but God is there with us. Oh, good. I uh, you'd be happy to know both of you that Mount Angel Abbey is still here, even though the students are gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely quiet around here. Uh, <laughs> Tell us about that. What is what is oh, it like there when we're not there? Well, it's quieter for sure, but uh, but we close the guest house too. Um, mm-hmm. 
June 11th, so it's, it's very, very quiet. But we have uh, 19 students at summer school, and I taught in summer school two weeks ago. That was good, and some of them are listening to our podcast, so mm. I was happy with that. Yes. Yeah, my, my course with them was on master themes too. So. Oh, great. Yeah. Were you able to go through all of them? Yes. Uh-huh. It was doctoral level, so I told them the difference between doctoral level and my doing the same thing for first theology is that I simply talk faster for at doctoral <laughs> level. <laughs> so I sped along and we got through it all and they had to do lots of reading. So it was fun. They're very good students. What about your your personal schedule and life during the summer? What is what does that look like? It's it's not too different from the rest of the year because I was squeezing teaching in in the seminary mm. and now I just don't have to squeeze that in, but the rest of the day is full without that. So mm. it's pretty much the same sort of stuff I always do. Do you still have enough time for prayer? Oh gosh, well, it goes six times a day, of course. <laughs> That's built into it. Uh-huh. But what's the theme today, you guys? Well, um, so we've had the past three episodes, we had the third master theme, the Paschal Mystery. We we'll better move on to the fourth one. And it's been a long time since we've been together and, and talked and recorded, so we'll just move forward and and trust that the Holy Spirit will guide our conversation. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, maybe before we go into the episode, would, uh, would either of you like to lead us in an opening prayer? Yeah, I can do that. Okay. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, send us your Holy Spirit to open our minds to the understanding of your beautiful mysteries. Help us through the power of the Spirit to know you and to know your beloved Son, Jesus, as Lord. Help us to penetrate mysteries and to learn to speak of them with eloquence and persuasively. Be present in our midst as we explore your mysteries through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so I'll just, um, I'll read the, the next master theme here. It's titled Anamnesis, Epiclesis, and Eschatology. And as I, I read, as I read through the, the description, of the few paragraphs that you have in the introductory chapter of your book, one thing that stood out to me is that there are lots of, lots of big words here. So I think it starts getting into some more complicated waters. And so maybe we'll just slow down and take the time that we need to really unpack these these terms. And some of these terms are things that I've heard several times before, but I don't I don't yet have a firm grasp on them. So I'm hoping that this will will help solidify that. But so the first one is anamnesis. What do you mean by that? What is anamnesis? Yeah, well, uh, what is this is a this is a technical term taken from the the liturgy, and it uh, it refers quite specifically to one of the parts of the Eucharistic prayer. 
uh, it's a Greek word, uh, which means memorial. And uh, it's, the, it's the word that the Gospels uh, show us as being present in Jesus's mouth at the Last Supper when uh, he says, take and eat, take and drink, do this as a memorial of me. So that's the word. And uh, anamnesists, uh, our, our hearers might get confused because there's two pronunciations of the word. You just said anamnesis and I say anamnesis. Of the re- I think everybody in English says anamnesis, but I'm, I just have this Italian thing in me. That's the way it's pronounced in Italy. And it's where I learned it from Marsili in Rome. Uh, but uh, so it, it's a part of the Eucharistic prayer. But what we're doing in Remember Our Method is to take something from the liturgy and use it to understand theological themes in the academy. So we're moving from one part of the Eucharistic prayer, that part of the Eucharistic prayer, which is a memorial of what Christ did. And we're talking about how all of theology has a, has a memory of the past. It celebrates the, the, the past, the deed, all of the deeds of God, which culminate in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. So one remembers that. One is remembering something from the past. And so that's what that word is. But the reason we treat it together with the next words, epiclesis, is because that's another part of the Eucharistic prayer, which does something different. Yeah, it doesn't look toward the past, but it looks to the present and the future. Epiclesis is the technical liturgical term for the invocation of the Holy Spirit to come and act, make, make effective the sacraments that we're celebrating. So it doesn't look to the past. It looks to the, the present and the future. And this is the third word in the master theme, eschatology, which is the future and the final things, the definitive shape. So it's a way, these, these three words, anamnesis, epiclesis, and eschatology, are a way for us in theology to talk about the meaning of time, past, present, and future. Now, that's just the basic framework. You can obviously, as we did in class, and as I hope we do today, you can dig into those very a whole lot. It's very significant that Christianity is rooted not in a, I don't know, it's not rooted in philosophical speculation. It's rooted in a narrative from the past. That's striking as a, as a religious uh, reality. Uh, we don't have ideas about God. We remember what God did in the past. That's an analysis. Yeah, so I kind of, had a question about this in, in relation to the mass and I've, I've heard, or maybe I misunderstood the idea that in the mass, we like go back in time to the crucifixion. And then I was listening to, I think it was a theologian on Catholic, on Catholic radio. And he was saying, no, we don't necessarily go back to the cross, but that it's re-represented in the mass. The, the sacrifice of the cross, but that the mass is, it, it's not, you don't, it's not like a time machine or anything. So how exactly does this idea of an, an animate, 
and amesis. I'll say it the way I can. <laughs> the way I can. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Either way is fine. <laughs> Anamnesis, epiclesis, and eschatology. Um, I guess how does that work? Because we are in you know in one place in time. I remember we talked about that in one of the master themes. We're in a you know a particular church at a particular time. So how does that work with our connection to the sacrifice of the cross on Calvary? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's the wonderful question, Caleb, because uh, what the mystery is, or what's, what's happening here, is that we are very much uh, in our own here and now when we celebrate uh, the Eucharist. Uh, but we are remembering the past, and we're remembering not just any past, but the past in which... Uh, God himself was active in Jesus. The definitive events of our salvation occur in the past. But part of what resurrection means, that Jesus is risen, we talked about this in the, the Paschal Mystery, part of what resurrection means is that things that happened in the past around Jesus are not confined by the limits of the past. What happens when you die is you're your time is over and, and time goes on without you and past gets more and more past if you're dead. But the Jesus who lived in the past is alive now. And so there's some mysterious sense that the liturgy gives us access to. There's some mysterious sense in which uh, that past event invades our present event and and defines it as it were so that our present event is no longer what it otherwise would be simply a particular limited mortal piece of time but this mortal piece of time that we're living this mortal space this confined space in which we're living is invaded by the reality of jesus's death and resurrection so it's, it's not a time machine. We don't sort of like go back to the past, but that past event in virtue of the resurrection of Jesus becomes present to us here and now. And the liturgy in that sense, uh, it gives us access to that, to that time and to that space. In that sense, the time of the liturgy is, is different from our time, our mortal limited time. And yet it's part of it. And so our mortal limited time, in fact, is filled with life. It otherwise would be dead. It would otherwise be finite space. But instead, it's filled with this divine reality that is Jesus, once crucified, now alive and risen. I don't know if that helps, but... That, yeah, that helps a lot. So, yeah. And I guess in a lot of ways that's where the the word epiclesis and the, the role of the holy spirit comes in because yeah. that's what brings the an, anamnesis the past and we become or that i guess like you say it invades time even our time but that's through the power of the holy spirit and then i guess we can as we as we continue talking we'll talk about the eschatology or uh, and the future how how that brings us to the to the future yeah, see, this is, the, this is 
the Spirit's gift. The, the Spirit doesn't just sort of vaguely come to the assembled community. The Spirit comes bringing Christ, uh, awakening in the church the memory of Christ or the anamnesis of Christ. But when the Spirit awakens that, the Spirit does that in such a way as to make us realize, ah, this moment that we are remembering is now. That's the, that's the Spirit's power. That's the Spirit's gift. This, uh, there's, um, I don't know if you know, but there's wonderful paragraphs in the, in the catechism on this. It's, these are some of the really good paragraphs on the, in, uh, in the liturgy of the, it's, uh, what, let's see, I have it here because, yeah, the um, beginning at paragraph uh, 11, uh, 10, 1091, I won't go into it too much, but it, it has these basic sentences that it unfolds. The Holy Spirit prepares for the reception of Christ. The Holy Spirit recalls the mystery of Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit makes present the mystery of Christ. Uh, all that is the Spirit's role or epiclesis in the liturgy to make that present to us. Father Abbott, let me ask you um, uh, maybe a, a skeptical question, a question from the perspective of a, of a skeptic. You started by saying that Christianity is not founded on, is not grounded on ideas that we've thought up. We, we, we don't sit around and th think about God and by thinking and talking, we arrive at God, but rather at this historical event of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then... But then we, we go on and we start to talk about God and now we're thinking and now we're articulating things that weren't present in the narrative itself, right? Or in the events themselves. And so I guess, so, so how do we think about that? What, what is the relationship between observing the events and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, extracting or adding to, not adding to, but expounding on or, or unpacking the events. Does that make sense? Yeah, but what did you mean that we're, you said something like we're narrating things that aren't part of the event? What, what do you mean by that? Well, things that um, we don't see in, we don't, so to, to simplify, um, you know, often there's the objection of, well, Jesus didn't say that, or Jesus didn't do that. Um, so things that are not directly observed in the events themselves, but uh -huh. are extracted from the events or are unpacked from the, from the events. Yeah. Well, in a sense, what all that is, is, is the, see, what the, the event, if it were only, an historical event, if that's all it were, then it would be a limited event. Mm -hmm. It would be a mortal event. What resurrection means is this, that event has uh, been filled with an infinite content. Mm -hmm. And so that event itself, as it's pondered in the life of the church, with the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, simply 
grows as it were you can you actually see it you see the event of resurrection growing itself it, it grows into the ascension it grows into his absolute glorification to his being totally where god is jesus being risen from the dead totally where god is we say at his right hand but that that event also grows into the holy spirit poured out upon the church and the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church, in fact, is, as Jesus himself promised, he will remind you of everything mm. and recall for you all that I have told you. And he also says, and he will lead you into all the truth. And so I suppose we could say that this is the Spirit uh, leading us into the inexhaustible truth of Jesus Christ. Inexhaustible means there will be something new uh, in every generation, in every believer's heart. There's no, there's no exhausting the mystery. You wouldn't sort of just say, you know, I've spent 50 years at this and I've got it down. I, I don't think that there's anything more for me to get out of this. Uh, I mean, no one reacts that way to living in Christ. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, is it accurate to think of, of that as a bridge between anamnesis and, ep and epiclesis, where anamnesis is about observing the events themselves as they happened, and then epiclesis is the Holy Spirit guiding us into deeper penetration into that reality? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, because the Holy Spirit has, uh, as his, you can tell from his action, the Holy Spirit has as his desire that we know Jesus mm. that, that, uh, and has that in, the, in knowing Jesus that we know the Father. That's, the Holy, that's what the Holy Spirit is. Mm. The Holy Spirit is knowledge of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit in us is, is uh, the, it's the Spirit that enables us to say Jesus is Lord. What, what, what's that mean? We're, the Spirit recalls the, the memory mm -hmm. of the Jesus who said, acted, and did this, who was crucified, has been raised up, and so Jesus is Lord. And uh, that same Spirit helps us to know and makes real for us a relationship with that one. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's a figure from the past, but we have a relationship here and now with him because he's risen. This is, this is effected in us through the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit also enables us to realize that our relationship with Jesus is his relationship with the Father, that we are adopted into that relationship. And so the spirit is the spirit that enables us to cry, Abba, Father, mm -hmm. to God. Uh, it's, it just goes round and round. I mean, that's why these, these words, uh, I, I said it in class to you guys. Uh, I was, that at first we're going to talk about anamnesis, and then we're going to talk about epiclesis. Uh, but I said, uh, we're not going to, and you can only say one thing at a time. But if I, if I could, I'd say everything at once, because it all happens, everything at once. The Spirit and the Son are, are totally functioning together. But you can only say one thing at a time, 
and do one thing at a time. And the same in, happens in the Eucharistic prayer. There's this part of the Eucharistic prayer that is uh, anamnesis. There's this other part of the Eucharistic prayer that is epiclesis. But it's not first one and then the other. They're constantly sort of interpenetrating each other. And that liturgical reality is an, is an image, it's an icon of what's happening in the congregation, what's happening in each of us. Because, you know, we don't have little parts of ourselves. Uh, I'm just who I am, but who am I? This is my ecclesial existence, to use Zizulas's words. I am, I am one in whom Christ crucified lives now. And that happens because the Holy Spirit has been given to me and seals that Christ life into me. That's who I am all the time. You can find, oh, well, that's Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. You can, those are dimensions of me, of you, of us all. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, you know, when we talk theologically, you kind of put things in neat order. But what you're putting in neat order, you're not dissecting the reality. You're just trying to understand its uh, multifaceted dimensions. Yeah, so I've been looking at my class notes on this fourth master's theme. And one thing it's talking about is that you were talking about the bread and wine as the sign of, of the memorial of the, the death and resurrection of the Paschal mystery. And... And so I kind of remembered how, how important the resurrection is. But there was one uh, line here that says the, that the, the bread and the wine are the unique signs of the resurrection, but the resurrection includes the crucifixion. So um, it reminded me of my vac vacation Bible school when I was teaching some of the, the kids in class about, we were talking about the crucifixion, but I was, I was teaching how, the you know what's what's unique about christ's crucifixion and and why is his crucifixion important other rather than you know other criminals that the romans crucified and my point was to try to bring up like hey if the resurrection didn't happen and christ was just dead what would have been the point and how important the resurrection was but this line caught me how even in the resurrection of christ that doesn't lose his crucifixion he's still the crucified Christ, and I remember you really emphasized that in class. So I guess my, I don't know if I have a question, but just maybe this will help bring up more discussion, is the idea that Christ in his Paschal mystery is both the resurrection and the crucifixion. And it's, it's not the crucifixion without the resurrection, and not the resurrection without the crucifixion. Yeah, you know, that one sees that in, in so many ways, and uh, it's the liturgy that instructs us in that, and it's the Lord's own arrangement. You know, uh, Paul, in the first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 11, is one of the places where we have uh, a narrative of the action and words of Jesus at the Last Supper. And so Paul himself tells the story uh, just like we do inside the Eucharistic liturgy. The night before he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, blessed it, gave it to his disciples, said, take and eat, this is my body. Do this 
uh, as a memorial of me, do this in anamnesis of me. And he does the same with the cup. And after Paul says that, he says this very important line. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So what do you have there? This is so striking uh, that you have. This is, this is a proclamation of resurrection. But how do we proclaim him risen? How do we experience him as risen? What is the memorial that he himself left us, which in, in the command there to celebrate that memorial, uh, he has hidden a treasure. And the treasure is he's hidden that every time we do this, this is what Paul says, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, the death of the Lord is proclaimed. The word proclaimed there, so vital, because you, you don't, this, this is a joyful word. So there's nothing joyful about uh, the death of the Lord unless he's risen. Mm. And to call him the death of the Lord, uh, Lord, Kurios, this, this, is his, this is his name as glorified one. So this is, uh, this is what I love about the Eucharist is just, uh, the way we know him to be risen is not that he sort of appears as risen Lord to us. That doesn't happen. He lets himself be known, to use language from another text you'll recognize, he lets himself be recognized in the breaking of the bread. This, this is always the context in which the church knows him to be risen. When we do the memorial of his death. And that's why it's so important to, to realize that the, the, the bread and the wine are signs that he gave us that point to the meaning of his death. And that enable us by, 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 by using these signs to make our memorial, uh, we... That is the context in which we recognize him as alive, as risen, as Lord, because we recognize him in the breaking of the bread. So the liturgy that is established by Jesus himself in this form is this privileged context in which we really do. There, there, there's, you know, in, in our sense of liturgy, there's this sense, he's alive. Here, present, now, when we eat this bread and drink this cup. So that's, that's this marvelous balance that, that the divine plan has, has put into things for us. I see um, we have about nine minutes before we get kicked out of this conference, so we'll save, um, we'll save eschatology to the, to the next episode. Maybe to just go, to just press that moment in the liturgy a little bit further, just something I've been curious about. I believe that there is, I guess I, I want to ask about the symbolism behind the deacon kneeling at that moment, in the moment of, if I'm not mistaken, that's the moment of the apoclesis, the moment of the invocation of the Holy Spirit. Can you just talk about that a little bit, the meaning and, and maybe the historical development, if it's relevant? Yeah, well, you know, to, 
to be honest with you, I don't know what the historical development was or what the practice was. I, I remember within my own lifetime uh, that uh, the deacons did not kneel at that. Uh, it was something that John Paul introduced at some point. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know what the history of that is. My own sense is that probably uh, all of the ministers were were standing around the altar. But what John Paul would have uh, wanted to emphasize by that is to, you know, as, as liturgy, you know, one is neither, is, and it's not right or wrong to do it this way or that way, but okay, we do it this way. What's that mean? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what, it, what the effect that it has, in fact, uh, is... Uh, in the choreography of the liturgy, it has the effect of drawing the attention of us all to the fact that something, that the prayer has a kind of shift in it to a more intense moment, uh, such that uh, we fall on our knees in the presence of the action of the Holy Spirit. It begins, the, the deacons kneel uh, when the epiclesis begins, and then they kneel throughout uh, the the uh, Eucharistic narrative and consecration. Uh, after that, in the Eucharistic prayer, the part that immediately follows that is technically the one part of the prayer that's called anamnesis, uh, that you, uh, uh, therefore, O Lord, uh, uh, remembering the death, uh, resurrection, ascension of your son. That's the part of the prayer that's called uh, anamnesis. But the Eucharistic narrative has in itself an, uh, an uh, anamnetic de- uh, element to it because that is anamnesis when you're remembering by your words and your actions the very th- things that Jesus said and did at the supper. That too, in an extended sense, is anamnesis. So, yeah, that the, that the deacon should kneel at that point uh, is just a, a, a way of saying visually, as I said with the choreography of the liturgy, that here uh, the Lord's action through the Holy Spirit and through Christ is taking place in a special way. One thing that's coming up for me, for the abbot, is more, kind of a, an evangelical question or a um, – this, this has been on my heart for, for a, the last three weeks especially. What would you say um, to someone who identifies as Catholic but doesn't see the – necessity or the importance or the beauty of weekly or even daily if possible but not even weekly sunday attendance i mean what is what is being lost when we are following christ but not living in the liturgy yeah well um 
Let's go back to some old-fashioned language, which I think, you know, we don't use it quite the same way, but it's it's still part of the teaching of the church. Uh, remember, remember, we used to say more frequently than we do now uh, that it's a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday. Um, and we think, well, let's think about that language for a minute, because I, I find it useful, even though it spooks people and makes them mad. But, uh, but uh you know, because it's sort of like, oh, why does the church have these inconvenient rules? That's the one thing I don't like about being Catholic is, is they just like have these rules that you have to keep. And it's just annoying, you know. So that's kind of our reaction to saying something's a mortal sin. But all the church wants to say by saying that, it wants to say something really big. It wants to say, you will die if you don't have this and and basically uh that's just a a reality uh of how precious and life-giving the eucharist is for us so that if you would have the opportunity to have access to it on a sunday and don't you keep that up as a habit and you will die spiritually it's not like the church kills you or something or makes you die because you didn't keep the rules the church is acting like a like a mother here and saying, "Hey, don't do this. It'll kill you. Mm-hmm. Don't fail to come. It will. You'll die without it." I think that's really what's being said. You know, daily mass is a, is a great blessing, and and where those of us who have it, it, it's it's wonderful. But that's not normative for the church. So I mean, you won't die if you don't go to daily mass, but. Without regular access to Sunday Eucharist, the church cannot be the church. And uh, I forget where it was. Uh, a very ancient text, if you read any stuff on Sunday. Uh, but there were these Christians who, uh, I think they were in some sort of mar- martyrdom context. But they said, you know, we'll die without Sunday. Uh, and we, we really do, I mean, in our culture now i think one of the best things that that we catholics could offer back to the culture is a recovery of the spiritual sense of sunday you know uh john paul ii uh, tried to do that with a it wasn't an encyclical but i think it was an apostolic exhortation of some sort on sunday you know uh a Dies Domini, I think is what it's called, you know, the Lord's Day. And uh, gosh, that's a beautiful document in the vision that it, that it says. It just, and, it, and it's focused on Sunday Eucharist, but uh, on how the whole day of Sunday for us uh, Catholics should be oriented around the celebration of the Eucharist. I guess I just want to say that. It's, it's not a rule you have to keep, but you just, you, you're missing something really big major constitutive of, of church life if you don't do this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Because um, why Sunday? Why not just, okay, everybody, go once a, once a week. I don't care when. No. Sunday is different from all other days. Sunday is a whole day that is this time that we were talking about. Mortal time invaded by the divine time of resurrection. 
This is, this is within our mortal time. We, 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 we count out the days in weeks. Okay, that's, a, that's an arbitrary human arrangement, if you will. It's got symbolic meaning rooted in the Bible and all that. But other cultures count out in tens or something, you know, who knows. But the week, that's a, that's a Jewish Christian arrangement of time. And Sunday itself is not like the rest of the week, which is to say it's not like the rest of time. It's the, it's the, it's the future time already now of resurrection. And we'll get really bored with life if we don't have Sunday, week after week after week, Sunday. Thank you, Father. Let's put a pause right here, and we'll come back shortly. Okay. See you. See you around. There it is, episode 10. Thanks again to all our listeners who have supported us through these first 10 episodes. By the grace of God and through your continued support, May they be the first ten of many. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode 11, where we'll continue the discussion on the fourth master theme. Be sure to go to our website for more information, and uh, until next time, God bless.